hopefully this, uh, this brings some asterisk. Um, we've been doing this on a minor prophet. We come to the end tonight, to Malachi, fittingly, the last minor prophet. And uh, I was thinking, what should I um, speak on on Malachi? When, uh, earlier in the fall, my son, Joshua, he's in, oh, there we go. Sorry. He's in first grade. And my son, Joshua, he comes home and he says, heaven has windows. So he says to me, heaven has windows. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, I didn't know that reference. Thankfully, my parents were present, and they're way more biblically literate than I am, having been raised before the internet. And um, <clears throat> they pointed out, oh, Malachi 3.10. Right? And so that's my passage for tonight. <laughs> so my, my son's first grade play, he goes to a Christian school, that's why they talk about him there. And um, we're going to talk, or I'm going to speak from Malachi chapter 3 about the windows of heaven. I'm going to explain what that means. It's way more interesting than it sounds. Um, follow along with me. So I'm going to read verses 7 to 12 of Malachi chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. From the day days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We just pray. Heavenly Father, bless this word to us. Open our eyes to understand it. Indeed, we ask for the blessing of So Malachi, Malachi is the last of the minor prophets, from the 5th century B.C., a little bit before Ezra and Nehemiah, after the exiles had returned from Babylon and rebuilt the temple. Right? That's where Malachi comes in. He's the last of the prophets. So we know this from Jewish intertestamental period writers, prophecies in the big capital P sense, like, thus saith the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, written down in the scripture, ends with Malachi. That's what the Jews said. It stopped in the middle of the 5th century, and there was a gap for close to 500 years until the coming of Christ, right? So it had stopped. Malachi comes at the end, and that points forward, I'll get to that, it points forward to Christ himself. But So in Malachi, Malachi comes in the form, it's a series of six disputations. So there's an accusation from God to the people of Israel. And then they, start, they sort of like, are, well, are we doing that? And then God comes back with the accusation. And so this, the passage I read to you is the fourth of those disputations. Fourth. And the specific thing here, this, this was a common theme in, uh, for the Israelites post-exile, is they're not paying, they're not bringing their tithes and offerings to the Lord. Right? That's what it says there in verse 8. Will man rob God? You are robbing me. And their response is, how, how have we robbed you? God's response is in your tithes and contributions. What you know? What's a tithe? It's like it's laid out in the law. It's mandated. You're supposed to give. It's a little more complicated than this, but a tenth of your income is a tithe. 
to support the work of the worship of God, the priests, specifically, in the Old Testament. So there's, there's this mandate, and that tithe, that's not like leftover money. That's your first fruits. It's the first thing that you do, right? Your tithe comes from your best stuff. And that, what that means is, of course, because, of course, these tithes, in most respects, weren't cash necessarily, but often farm animals, right? It's agricultural economy. And that's what's being described here. And so the accusation is they're robbing God. They're robbing God. And then what the, God says in return something really dramatic. In there in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So this is God challenges them to obedience and giving. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Put me to the test. Should we put God to the test? Why not? He said not to. Let me just dwell there for a moment. In Deuteronomy 6.16, it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus quotes that in Luke chapter 4 to the devil when Satan is putting him to the test and the temptations out in the wilderness, right? And so for me, you know, it's like I'm reading this and I'm like, put the Lord your God, thereby put me to the test. Like God right here is saying, what does this mean? Well, here's, here's my explanation. It's like, so it, the putting your, the, your God to the test, like Satan with Jesus in the wilderness, is like trying to trick him away from obedience. Or in the Deuteronomy sense, is through... Uh, disobedience through duplicity uh, to put your God to the test. Here, here's the kind of testing God welcomes. And it's the kind of testing that is be obedient to my will. Follow me. Obey my ways. And test to see if the promises I have made don't come to pass. Don't come true. Right? Put me to the test. This is a powerful claim a powerful promise he's given to them. And so that's what I want to, I want to talk about three ways. I want to challenge us in three areas to bring in the full tithe and so to put God to the test. I want to, I want to ask the question, does it pay to be a Christian? I mean, it's a, that's a foolish, let me just say, that's a foolish way, I speak foolishly, like in a human sense, does it, because of course being a Christian is not about getting paid, right? But it's kind of, this is what God is saying to the Israelites here, in Malachi, is like, it pays to follow me. It pays. So does it pay to be a Christian? Let's discuss that. And I want to talk about it in three different spheres in life. First, finances. That's the most immediate context here. Second, relationships. And third, the affections of our heart. Right? Finance. I just don't just mean Wall Street. Right? Money. Financial resources. Economics. Relationships. And our heart. Emotional and spiritual well-being. All right, so let's talk, talk first about finances. Right? Does it pay to be a Christian? Like, will it make you richer to be a Christian? Yes or no? No. no What's hesitant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so not always. That's the right answer. Like, does it does it pay to be a Christian? It's funny. I was reading I was reading the preface of a book um, by by an alum from. Uh, a few years back, um, uh, and the book is on venture capital, how to get venture capital. He, he start, had a startup that, you know, he sold for millions of dollars. And so he's written a book on venture capital, how do you get venture capital. And it's funny, so I'm reading the foreword, and basically this is what he says. You, you want to raise money, you need friends. That's it. You want to raise money, you need friends. The way you raise money 
is having friends who believe in you, who trust in you, who have confidence in your ability. And, uh, and I, I want to just say, again, speaking a little foolishly for a moment, it pays financially to be a Christian. Bear with me here, because that's not what the Christian faith is about, but it pays financially, generally speaking, to be a Christian. Because being a Christian compels you to have friends. I've seen this. <laughs> it compels other people to be your friends. <laughs> and that pays off. I mean, that pays off. What, what do I mean by that? It's like, you come, your car's broken down. If you can't pay the repairs on your car, you can't get to work, you don't go to work, you lose your job. If you have no friends, if you have no church, if your friends are just there to like go drinking with you, your car doesn't get fixed, you lose your job, you go broke, right? Where it's like, and I've seen this many times, it's like, you know, you have that financial need, you share it as a prayer request in your small group. If you're, you know, if you don't want to do the direct, please give me money. You just throw it in there as you go to a smaller day, and then you share it as a prayer request, and then the money comes. Right? The car gets fixed, you go to your job, you don't go broke. <laughs> or, I mean, even on the high end, in, you know, in these sort of Princeton circles, it's true, like in venture capital, you can say a student said to me, Jay Sourdough, he said to me, it's like, Christian, should Christianity make you poor? Right? It's like we're trying to derail people from earning money, and of course there is truth to that, right? It's like there's, there's truth in that, like, the Christian faith drives you to do, to be obedient to God's will rather than to just satisfy your desire for money. It's true. It's true. But one of the strange side effects of being a Christian is it should make you smarter with money, better with money. Invest more. Save more. I mean, I've seen this with my Princeton friends. The secular ones, you just live for the financial return, for the material. You live for the conspicuous consumption. Right? If you're a Christian, you have that money coming in. You feel like, I don't live for this money. You give it away. You save. You be prudent. You give it to your friend who has a venture capital idea, or you give it to your friend who's in need in danger of going broke, right? Or who has a medical bill. So again, speaking foolishly for a moment, it does pay, it does pay, I have seen this in many, many, many ways, it does pay to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to be earnest in following Christ. Now, of course, I'm not doing justice to the text here, because I think what God is saying is something beyond just the, the like positive externalities of Christian community. And the blessings of Christian generosity and charity to fellow brothers and sisters. Because I think God is saying something stronger here. Something that, for me, as a very prudent Presbyterian, makes me a little uncomfortable. This is the promise, if you bring in the tithe, you will be blessed financially, supernaturally. God will provide for your needs. I mean, I, I tell you, you know, my upbringing is more like God provides for your needs by making us prudent and humble and hardworking and in community with others and we seek and care for one another. But I do think this goes farther than that. And this, this, if you're obedient to God, you will be blessed. Now, it's a dangerous, you know, you shy away from that some because you don't want to fall into this health and prosperity gospel where you just say, if you follow God, you will be rich, you will be healthy. But let me tell you, like, just from my own observations, Christians, I mean, statistically speaking, Christians, those who are more religious are healthier. And actually, it is good for your wealth. It is good for your wealth. Here's the most important way in which being a Christian pays financially is it breaks you from the power of greed. It should and can break you from the power of greed, from dependence on material well-being. So this is the most beautiful. I mean, we often, you know, we, we come in our sin before the Lord, and we say, Lord, bless me with money. And maybe, you know, we're broke, and that's direct money we need. But often what we're saying is, because really what, what my heart desires is these material things, Lord. I need these material things. I want these material things. 
it's, uh, it's doubly hard as a Princetonian because you're, you know, it's like if you don't roll the path of riches, you will have friends who do. And so then they'll, you know, they'll be like, come join us in our vacation to the Bahamas this weekend. This is my friend, my roommate at Princeton. You know what I mean? It's like, let's fly to the Bahamas this weekend. And I'd be like, no money. Not going to happen. But it's like in the gospel, it breaks us of that. And this is where the, it truly pays to be a Christian. It's like you are no longer in bondage. So I, I mean, I've seen this. This, this is the hard thing being around just young Christians, where it's good to know old Christians who have lived humbly, who know what it is to feel plenty and to feel want, and who just aren't bound by that. They don't have the biggest house. They don't have the nicest car. They don't have the fanciest vacations. They don't go to the best restaurants. But that is just not where their heart lies. That's a beautiful thing. That's not where their heart lies. So it pays. That's first. It pays to be a Christian. I mean, even in the practical sense of the people mean that, but really, deeply fundamentally. And so the call for us is to give. Like, how is that broken, that power of greed, that power of materialism, that dependence? It's by us bringing in the tithes and the offerings. Give. Your money shows where your heart is. This is a hard message to speak to you all because, of course, you're all like, uh, not all of you, some of you, I'm sure, are working hard and paying your own expenses, but it's like all... This time in your life, this room is one of the groups of people who are most immune to financial concerns, right? You'll feel it more, obviously, in later years. You know, a student, it's like we talk about people selling out, you know, if you go work on Wall Street or whatnot. Well, you know, the, the day we came to Princeton, we sold out, right? There's so much money flowing through this place at us. But we just don't see that, right? We don't see that. Well, remember this through your life. Where your money is, there your heart is also. So remember this. And what is the call from God? Tithe, tithe from the first fruits. You know, from a New Testament perspective, it's no longer a law. It's it's an exhortation that we be cheerful givers. Second Corinthians that we be cheerful givers. God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't we don't go around and tax each other. Right? The pastor doesn't say, "Send me your your tax returns, and I'm gonna figure out." Actually, Jewish synagogues do 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 this. Is like they tax you. It's a certain percent of your income. That's what membership implies. My understanding. But this is not what we do in the New Testament context. But give, give of the first fruits. Don't give the leavings, don't give the scraps to the work of God. Don't give the leftovers after you've satisfied every woman and every desire of your heart. Give the first fruits. You know what that word means? The best stuff. It's like it's like if you set up automatic withdrawals for all your bills, like that, and, that, and you can do this now with churches. That comes out before you spend your money on other things. That's the call relative to our finances. Bring in the time. So second, our relationships. Bring in the time in our relationships. What does God ask of us in our relationships? What does he ask? He has something very powerful, which is that we love one another as he loved us. How did Jesus love us? Did he love just the people who were nice to him? He loved his enemies. He loved his enemies and died for them. And it's like, what's the modern approach to relationships? I think of this, I remember very strongly, it's like visiting homes of, like, secular friends, Princeton friends. And it's like, I remember this one home so strongly. You know, there's a dining room table with two seats. And there was one love seat in front of the television. And the second bedroom was a huge office. And so I was just thinking, like, where does a person, I mean, we were buying a table from them. That's what we were there. They were showing us off. Furniture. 
And it's like, where does someone sit here? If you had a guess, like one guess, you could not have one guess over to him. Right? That's like the approach. I mean, there's like you found a spider spouse, and you're done. And what's the church approach? The church approach I really struggle with too. The church approach to relationships is it's a little more expansive than that. But it's kind of like I'm looking to find six people, maybe eight, who I know. And I want to know then really just that. For church, I want to talk to them, those folks. You know, my small, I want my small group to be, my Bible study to be just those people. You know, and then like if you're a church leader, you know, I have for years, I, I'm, I'm like off this now because we hired a new pastor who handles this. But for years I handled every, new, every newcomer who was a young adult, 20-something. That's what that means. Every newcomer who was a 20-something who came to the church, their, their email came to me. And it was my job to find a home for them. And you go and you ask people, it's like, will you take in newcomers to your small group? No, no, no. I mean, you run down the list. No, 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 right? I mean, they're, they're not just two people, dinner for two. There, there's some hospitality there. There's some relationship, but it's limited. But what is the tithe Jesus is calling us to? The tithe Jesus is calling us to is to love sacrificially, to extend. Like So in relationships, and yeah, it's great for the people you know, the people who you like, the people who love you, to be in relationship with them. God demands of us something more. Not just like, again, not just the leavings or the scraps. Like after I've talked to all my friends, after I've had all my relational needs yet, after I've found that special someone, anything that's left over, any time that's left <coughs> over, I'll meet a newcomer. Or talk to someone different from me. The tie God asks of our relationships is some of this, that first fruits. That first fruits in our relationships that we be giving to the Lord's work. <coughs> that we reach out, that we welcome in people who are like us. And let me tell you, it pays to obey God in this sphere. It pays to obey God in the relational sphere and to love people. How does it pay? I mean, even again, going in that crass, foolish sense of like venture capital, to have venture capital, you need friends. You need relationships, people who like you. It's like, I'm amazed at like, if you just commit yourself, this is this is like, it's my wife, Christina, who's class level three at Princeton. It's, she's always like um, being asked to find people to hire to fill jobs, all right? By various folks. It's like, we need someone for this job. And they always come to her because she knows people, right? Hundreds of people. And so it becomes this joke, right? Because at the school where she works, it's like, it's always like, well, we need someone for this position and this position. And there's always someone who was in our small group, right? Who was in our small group who could fill that position. You want to, you want to see how Christian community gets paid? You've got to know the people who are reaching out to others. You know them, they'll connect you to that job. Even in that crass sense, it pays to be a Christian. What is so much more beautiful than that is having that, that deep desire we have in our hearts to only relate to people we like, to be stingy, to be miserly with our affections and our relationships, to have that broken. Right? God has called us to love each other. It is a beautiful thing to be in someone's life that much more so when it's difficult. I mean, I think of myself, I became a Christian as a Middle school, I gave nothing back to the people who led me to Christ. I had nothing to give as a 14-year-old. Some of you maybe were mature, thoughtful, gracious 14-year-olds. 
I was not. I was like listening to Kurt Cobain and feeling depressed. That's where I was as a 14-year-old. There was no return on investment for me for those who let me invest. Their only return they were looking for was an eternal return. They just loved on me. That's what they did. Let me tell you, that is a beautiful thing. This is the tithe God is asking of you to give of yourself relationally. To invest. Let me tell you, it is hard. It is hard. I want to take a side note. I mean, a lot of the time, it is awesome to have so many, to just be building those relationships. I mean, part of it is hard because, of course, people move on. You can't have, you know, you can't have the deepest relationship, but you can't maintain the connections you would like. You have to trust that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But I, I will tell you, it is hard. I understand why people are so averse to relationships. It is hard dealing with people. We are hard you know the hardest thing is is us, right? It's us. Like people really bring the difficulty, and that, but still, when you are in that position, remind yourself like this: okay, yeah, this is the sacrifice God is calling for me to make. To love this person at this time, they, they, for, for them to love me. So that's the second relationship. Bring in the tithe and the offering. Last, the affections of your heart. The affections of your heart. I remember talking to a student years ago. He's from China. No framework for the Christian faith. And he asked me, he's like, so, like, are Christians happy? I mean, I know they're like, it's like, there's like joy. <laughs> Christians have joy. But I know it's not like, like real joy. <laughs> That's what he said. And I was like, oh, man, you found this out. <laughs> That's right, we promised you happiness. And then, you know, it turns out it's a hard walk um, some of the time. So, so let's ask that question. Let's test it. Does it does it pay just in our hearts? Does it make us happy? Just reading this online, Yahoo Answers. It's not a source of truth or wisdom. <laughs> Yahoo Answers. I was doing research on what the culture has to say about whether or not you should convert people for a solar discussion the other week. And the guy said, like, you shouldn't try to convert people because really religion just exists to make you happy. It's just a personal thing. Feel good. That's it, right? That's it, and that's kind of, that's kind of dominant in the culture. So let's ask that question. Let's does it pay to be a Christian in terms of happiness? Does it make you happy? Let me speak foolishly. Yes, yes, it does. Generally speaking, far more than walking away from the world. Does it make you happy? Like in that straightforward, normal sense, like you feel good. Follow God and see and test him to see what happiness and what joy comes from. Well, that's a dangerous thing for me to say to you. I mean, I can tell you I've been a Christian a lot of years, and I haven't always been happy in the times that I've been a Christian. I haven't always been happy. Matthew Henry's great, great quote on this. He, was a, he wrote a commentary on the whole, whole of the Bible. It's just, he just flows through verse by verse. Oh, that's awesome. Matthew Henry said about this, because it's true, like, the day-to-day is often difficult. This is what Matthew Henry said. There are many who have been losers for him, for the Lord. Losers for him. But none are losers by him in the end. Follow what that means. There are many who have been losers for him, which is to say, sometimes it is hard. I mean, I don't want to minimize how hard it can be. Some of you know just how hard it can be in this life. Many have lost a lot to follow God. 
lost a lot, been in that sense a loser, kind of seemed false to the world around him, but no one, no one has been a loser by him in the end. In the end, God is bringing to us joy. He's bringing to us the unwinding of all the sorrow that exists in our hearts, that exists in the world. He is undoing it bit by bit, and he is using us if we respond in obedience to him to accomplish that. What is the tithe and offering God asks of our heart? He asks of our heart. What he asks is worship. Is worship. That our hearts would be oriented towards praising his name, giving him glory, fulfilling his will, rather than anything else. I mean, there are so many other great things in the world that God has created. So all sorts of different types of idolatry. We call them idols. You take a created thing, so many of which are wonderful, good things, and you turn it into an ultimate thing. So, you know, I have some great stuff. You know, I'm married and I have children. It's awesome. Though both those things are amazing blessings. Right? I have a job. I live in Princeton. How much good, better could it be? Really? Right? It's like, you have all these things, but all these things, if you just, it's so easy to be like, to just take them and you start worshiping everything in my life is like if you worship your children then what happens if one of your children starts doing badly or struggling god forbid you lose one you lose a child even your spouse if you live your life and everything is directed on your spouse then fulfilling you that's a terrible burden to place on them but then providing all the joy and happiness you feel you need and then one day and they can't do it and they don't deliver what then this is the great gift, the greatest gift God's given us. He's enabled us to worship Him. Let all these opportunities. Worship Him. He is good. But what has He given us? Has He given us the leavings and the scraps? Has He just given us what was left over, as we so often give Him, of our time and our money and our hearts? God gave us His own Son to die on the cross for our sins. God on Gave us his own son, one and only son, to die that we might have eternal life. He gave us the first fruits, the best that he had, the very best. You know, right there, right there is happiness. It's the kind of happiness that, like, when times are great, is there with you, makes them that much sweeter. It's the kind of happiness that, when times are hard and difficult, takes away that sting takes away that dominance, that, that unhappiness, that, that struggle, that that despair has over your life. Right? There is the freedom. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so this is what God says. Test me. Test me, he says to us. Test me by being obedient. Follow him and see how it turns out. See how it turns out. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing to ponder at this time in your life. This is the great thing about being young, right? It's like other people have done this experiment with their lives. That's the great thing about knowing the old. It's like, if I do certain things and I take it out to age 85, what, how does it turn out, right? How does it turn out? Well, let me tell you and, and testify, it pays to follow Christ. It pays. Not necessarily in the ways you fully understand and know right now. Often the ways it pays are by breaking down sin in your life and by rebuilding you in righteousness. But nonetheless, it pays. It pays in blessing and all your needs being fulfilled, not just your material needs, but also your relational needs and also the needs of your heart to 
how is this accomplished by transforming you to no longer being just obsessed with your own appetites, with your own needs, but rather by being filled with joy and awe at a great God and what he has done for you, and responding in great obedience to do his will, rather than to just live grasping at what we can, grasping, but rather being feeling those windows of heaven open up. This is the image of the windows in heaven. They will open up and overflow, the overflow of God's blessings. The image, I mean, it's used elsewhere, rain. Right? It's an agricultural metaphor. The rain will pour down and your crops will grow. The blessings will pour down and we will have abundance of our needs and the needs for everyone around us. And this is the, the promise of God. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great blessings we've received. Indeed, we are blessed materially beyond almost everyone who has ever lived in the world. And yet, Heavenly Father, we see the great spiritual poverty, the great spiritual need, the great brokenness that exists in our own hearts and that exists around us. And Heavenly Father, we lay hold of the promises of the gospel. We lay hold of them. Heavenly Father, teach us obedience. Give us, by your grace, the ability bring in the tithes and the offerings, to give to you, give to you of money that we have, certainly of our time, give to you in our friendships, give, give to you our heart, give you the very best that we have, give to you the first and best things that we have, Heavenly Father. May that be offered up before your throne. Lord God, I pray that you give us your spirit to help us to persevere when times are difficult, when it is hard to give, when giving, when tithes and offerings makes us seem like losers in the world, but we know, Heavenly Father, none are losers by you in the end. Heavenly Father, your grace is sufficient even in the most difficult of times. We testify, we testify to that of our own lives. We testify to it in the lives of the saints who have gone before us. We testify to it through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.